we are known in our denomination for believing in divine sovereignty. We make a big deal of that. People think that's all we believe. That's not true. But do people who believe in divine sovereignty believe in human responsibility? The answer is absolutely. And anyone who says we don't, that we're fatalists or robots, doesn't understand. Anybody who says we preach such a gospel that it comes without responsibilities, they don't understand what the gospel does for us as it motivates us on the inside and gives us greater desire to pursue those responsibilities given by us. And so, yes, we believe that people are responsible and that people should be responsible, especially for those under their care. So we look at our governors and our governments and we say, you're responsible to be public servants of the good of the citizens. You kind of represent God in the way that you legislate and execute and adjudicate. And we expect you to be serious and keep your responsibilities, uh, pursue them. We believe the same thing for elders in the church, that it's, that it's your job, men, elders. I'm one of 10 active elders here right now. It's our job our responsibility, our obligation, our duty, what we've been charged to do to shepherd you well. Should we just shirk our responsibility and say, well, we believe in a divine sovereign God and grace is going to happen, so don't worry about it? No. And so towards that end, your session has set up a way to try to be even more responsible community groups under the leadership of Paul Adams where we say please find your community group where you can be in a group of 8 to 12 or 15 people that are regularly gathering where you're praying for people and being held accountable by those people in love then recognizing that not all will find their place in a community group we have a women's ministry led by Paula Paula May, where she says, there are just special needs that ladies have, and we are so serious about shepherding you that we've set up a women's ministry. Are, her whole desire is to serve. And then men. This kind of been happening just out of our back pocket as men have been very serious in loving men in different non-connected ways. But this year we set up with Jeff Callahan and Pat Badstibner the idea that we want a more dedicated ministry that takes advantage of of camps and small groups and retreats and seminars and one-on-one -on -one discipleship and resources because men we care for you and while we want you to be in a community group we recognize not all of you will so we want to meet you in a special way we have Mark Goldsmith who on behalf of the session is 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 the the point person with assimilation for our counseling ministry. What that means is when we find someone whose needs are not being met by, by the community groups or by our men's and women's ministries, that Mark Goldsmith then can sit and meet and I'll be there too and we'll listen and we will know what are the best resources we have in-house to help in connection with what are the best resources we know out-house that can help and we'll help that person design a custom care plan that can help them. Sue Murphy has led this team that desires there's some people who just can't come to anything because they're getting older in life or they're just infirm they just can't make it we're not leaving you behind we're going after you 
And when I say go after, that may be aggressive. We're, we're going to love you. We want to make phone calls to you, write cards to you, deliver flowers to you, come visit if you'll let us make. But we are so serious about pastoral care because we want to be even be more responsible. We then look at husbands and say, don't get married unless you want to be responsible to love, lead, sacrifice, suffer, die for your bride. Parents, that's your responsibility to the children you bring into this world. It's their interests that matter most as you are going to sell out your own desires to improve them. This is what we do because we want to be responsible. And it's what David realized was his duty. David is a man with 600 mighty men. He is a man who has about 2,000 or 3,000 people with him now, and they have been cave jumping in the desert, which can't be fun with two to 3,000 people as they're running from Saul. But David and his mighty men, seeking to be responsible, said it's time for us to go behind Philistine lines. They went and made a deal with King Achish, they made their home in a place called Ziklag because they wanted to provide and protect for their children. They wanted to shepherd their church, their flock, their family well. And at first, it looked like their decision was a good decision. For 16 months or so, release from Saul, peace with the Philistines. They get victory in battles. They're even amassing for themselves quite a bounty, uh, Things are looking good in the checkbook for them right now. But then things took a tough turn. David and his 600 men were summoned from Ziklag. They had to leave their, their wives and their daughters and sons behind, and they had to go to this town called Aphek because there the five Philistine lords and kings had amassed the entire Philistine army. Why? They were going to go to battle against King Saul. Prince Jonathan, David's best friend, and David's people, the Israelites. David and his 600 men were in a mercenary contract of sorts, and they expected David to go along with them. David's in a real pickle, as we talked about last week, between a rock and a hard place, but he had a gracious God. God used the Philistine lords to look and say, we're not going into battle with this guy unless he stab us in the back. And ultimately, not because of David's own doing, but because of God's grace, God sent David home. He and his men would be able to sit out this conflict that you're going to read about in next week's chapter. But just because God rescued him from one disaster doesn't mean that God rescued him from all disaster. He and his men arrive back home at Ziklag and they are blown away by what they see, probably blown away by what they smell. They show up to the city and they realize that some group of terrorists have plundered. The evil one with his evil men has targeted those who are helpless. And while David and his men were gone, they attacked the city. They plundered the city. They had their way with David's wives and daughters and sons, took them, kidnapped them, held them in bondage, and then charred the city. David and his men come back. They arrive, and at first they are just confused. Then they are sorrowful. It gets worse. It's their grief-stricken. It says they wept until they could wep no more. They are absolutely worn out with grief they then get angry 
They then get bitter. They then get murderous. And they say, this may be the very day that we execute, that we stone God's chosen Messiah. We don't like how he has led us. We don't like where we are now. This may be the day of David's execution. This point, David has a good day we talked about. He's had some bad days, some rough days. This day he has a good day. As God's appointed little limb Messiah, he goes to the Lord and he is strengthened by the Lord. David, the Holy Spirit within and the Father above have a conversation. They engage in prayer. They engage in the word of God. They commune with one another and the Messiah comes out strengthened. He also comes out informed. He hears from the Lord the next thing he is to do. He is responsible to serve his God. He is responsible for the 600 men, but also their wives and their families. And as a good executive, as a good elder, as a good pastor, as a good commander, as a good husband, as a good father, it is his job to do what? To pursue, to find, to attack, to kill. This is his calling. God's Messiah is to rally the men. So he does. The Messiah goes to the men who are way less than faithful towards him right now. And he wins the day with their hearts. That Messiah does. He tells them, this is what we're supposed to do. This is what God has said. And I even have better news than that. God has promised us victory. I can't lose in this one. Because my God has already said, I'm going to give my Messiah victory here. And David wins their hearts. He communicates God's will to his people. Though they are grief-stricken, broken, fearful, traumatized, angry, bitter, murderous, and sinful, emotionally worn out and physically weak, they are to be strong and courageous. They are to put their armor on and fight like men. To stand against the devil and his evil ones, they have a responsibility to love, lead, serve, sacrifice, suffer. Or as John Eldridge writes, every man has a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. So these grief-stricken, broken, fearful, traumatized, angry, bitter, murderous, sinful, emotionally worn out, and physically wasted worshipers, they head out. They hear their divine calling to stand up and fight like men against the evil one for the good of their families and their church. At this point, grace is showered on these people in lots of different ways. The first way is physical stamina. All right, they're here in Ziklag. They're called to Aphek. 60 miles they travel to Aphek. All right, they get there. They're removed from service. They don't have to go to war. In the space of three days, 60 miles back to Ziklag. That's 120 miles with at least the last 60 being done at 20 miles a day, marching with all of their armor. They are there. 
they are seeing, they are putting out fires, they're emotionally worn out, so they're so tired they can't even weep anymore, the text tells us. Then David says, it's time for us to go pursue the terrorists. Whoever they are, wherever they went, however many there are, we don't know this yet. So now they start marching in that condition 15 miles to the brook Bezor. 60, 60, 120, 15 is 135, and I didn't go to Georgia Tech. Now they're here, and one-third of his men cannot go any further. They may want to go fight. They may wish they had the opportunity. They're desperate, but they can't perform. I mean, they're impotent. They're exhausted. There is no way for them to do that which God has called them to do. David is not angry at them. David recognizes the Lord may give some of my men strength to carry on and he may not allow some of my men to have strength, but David looks at him and says, you're going to stay here and you're going to guard the baggage and the supplies. You're still going to serve. You're still participants in this. You're just not going to be on the front lines and it's not going to look like other people serve, but make no, but no doubt about it. Have no doubt about it. You are serving here in your condition. Be faithful be responsible. But with the other men, the other two-thirds of his army, those 400 men, they're able, even though they went 60, 60, and 15, they are able to now chase terrorists throughout the desert. That's grace. When God gives you some kind of a, an ability, some kind of a, a skill, some kind of a strength, we call it a gift, maybe a fruit, I don't know. It's all just grace from God. And why God gives some people some gifts and other people don't get those particular gifts, that's not up for you and I to talk about. God is the one who distributes his gifts as he wants to. And then he gives the fruit as he wants to. But you do have a responsibility to be responsible. So now David, with his men who are graced with extra strength, carry on. Well, what happens? Unbelievable. Lucky things just seem to happen to God's people. They meet a man who's been left for dead for three days in the wilderness. They don't know anything about him right now at this point. They just know he's in a, a sad shape. They give him food. They give him drink. They nurse him back to health. They do what God's people are supposed to when they come across aliens and sojourners and foreigners and those who have been abused by others. They show love. When he comes to his senses, they start asking questions. Very interesting when you realize what happens here. That this man says, I'm from Egypt, but I have been serving my Assyrian master, and I was one of those who was just in your city, in your house, with your wife and daughters, and I took them with me before we set your household ablaze. Yeah, whoa, whoa. David says, I'm going to give you an opportunity to switch teams, to switch allegiances, to switch masters. Would you like to tell me where your men were going, where your people are? At this point, he learns they are the Assyrians. This guy who was the great enemy 
One of the great enemies of Israel, of David, of David's household, looks at him and says, will you swear to me that you will not turn me back over to my master and that I can be with you and you will not kill me? And I want you to swear to me before your God. And the Messiah swore before his God. I will show you that kind of grace. You'll be with me. The Egyptian servant then says, I'll show you where to go. We see more grace here as God gives strength, but God also gives direction. He leads his people in the way they should go so that they can fight the fight that he has called them to fight against whoever, however many they are, wherever they may be found. This is your duty. Just follow the direction of the Lord. And this man leads them to where the Assyrians are. And what do we find there? More grace. These guys are wasted. The text appears that tells that they're just, they've eaten and they've drank all night long. Their nocturnal celebration carried on and they are just laying out all over the camp. It's like a mopping up opportunity for David's men. And all day long into the evening, they kill. They waste the wasted people. So many people were killed that only a remnant left. 400 of them fled on camels. That tells you how big the force was. That David and his 400 men can kill people all day long and they wipe out all of them except for the remnant, which is 400 that escaped. This is nothing more than more supernatural grace by God as he is the one who calls us. He is the one who strengthens us. He is the one who lets lucky things happen to us so that he can give us direction, so that he can then give us victory. And he gave them more grace, spoil. Not only did they get back all their sons, all their daughters, all their wives, and all their possessions, but these Assyrians had plundered many cities and they came back with more bounty, more earthly possessions than they ever deserved. This is the grace of God as he graces those whom he calls. Well, they're traveling back now, and at this point, you can imagine how happy this parade is. We got husbands holding their arms out with their wives who were kidnapped, holding on, and they're marching back to Ziklag. Their little children are behind, and they're just singing their songs, they're praising their God, they get, maybe have some wagons they're pulling with all of the new toys and the possessions they have. And as they're going along, you can hear them saying, we love David now. Yeah. One day they love Jesus. The next day they're saying, crucify, crucify. And then the next day, we love Jesus. And isn't this the wishy-washy affection of the Messiah's friends? Yeah, they're, they're, they're shouting David's name. And they're saying, this is all David's spoil. It's in our hands. It all belongs to the Messiah, but it's in our hands. But it's all David's. To David be the glory. And everything is great. They make their way back to the brook Bezor, where 200 people are there. And you can imagine those reunions as men who couldn't go forth to fight, but sent their sons, see their sons come back with their sisters. How great must have been that celebration. Until... Wicked and worthless men show their hearts by means of their lips. The text says, Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Hey, because they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil 
we had recovered. Oh, yeah, we'll let them go away with their wife and daughter, children, and depart. The rest is ours. I thought it was David's spoil. No, 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 no. It's ours. What arrogance. Remember, these are 600 men that started as despised debtors, suffering utter devastation, utter exhaustion, getting a promise from God, seeing his providence with an Egyptian servant, the providence with a wasted enemy, the supernatural power to defeat. They said, this is David's spoil. But then they come back and they love looking at their brothers whom God didn't give the same strengthening grace to them and saying, they didn't perform like us. They didn't fight like us. They didn't work as hard as us. They weren't as good, strong, or faithful as us. They don't have the merit we do. Oh, they can have their wives and their children. That's all. The rest is ours. Notice that the text says these are wicked and worthless fellows. You have seen that phrase again. It goes all the way through 1 Samuel. These are wicked and worthless fellows. These are sons of Belial, to use Paul's language in the New Testament. This is Hophni and Phinehas-like, who were sleeping with the women at the tent. This is when God called his first Messiah, Saul, and there were wicked and worthless people who said, God can't use a person like that. That's who we're talking about here. The last time you saw this was with Nabal, the man who received all of this from the Lord through David's hands and protection, refused to share with others, called a wicked and a worthless man by his servant and his wife. So now we see this. This is not good. It is wicked and worthless people who say, we have earned what God has graciously granted. David didn't share their thoughts. I can hear David saying, wait, wait, wait. I believe in responsibility. Sure, we have endeavored to be faithful. We took our responsibility seriously. We worked hard. We fought hard. We sweat much. We performed pretty well. We were heroic. We were courageous. We did that which is good to do. Let's just give them the golf clap. Yes. All that is what we're supposed to do as worshipers. We get to do. It's what good. But then I can hear David saying, but, but it's the Lord who took a deplorable people, a devastated people, an exhausted people, a lost and confused people, a hopeless people who strengthened their Messiah, kept them from killing him, gave them promises, granted some extra strength and stamina, provided the desert guy, wasted their adversaries, protected their wives and children in the middle. And the text says, the Lord has given us this victory. He has preserved and has given us this band. All this is from God. All of it is gift. All of it is grace. None of it is earned wages. None is deserved reward. None is a fair reaping for anything you have sown. Therefore, David says, since you guys were just marching down the street yelling, this is David's spoil, this is David's spoil, let me tell you what David says we're going to do with David's spoil. 
We're going to give God's grace to anyone and everyone in this family, regardless of their reception of grace or what graces God gave them, whether they had strength or victory or direction. We're just freely we have received, freely we are going to give. Thus says David, thus says the man who's going to be the king, and this is going to be the new standing operating procedures for my land from now on. When we go to war, whether you're the ones who are sitting back here and you can't go as far as other people, you haven't made as much progress maybe as other people, you don't look as visually as successful as other people, you didn't perform in the same way, God's grace is still given to you, like Jesus said in his parable. Some came to work at 6 a.m. Some came to work at noon. Some don't make it until 5 p.m. But at the end of the day, is it not God's gift to give as he wants to? And he graciously gives to people, not based upon their performance, or that wouldn't be grace. He gives people his grace because of his performance and his desire. It's wicked and worthless people who are stingy in sharing God's grace. It's wicked and worthless people that say, I've got my family, I've got our church, I've got my possessions, I've got my joy and peace because I have performed. That's a wicked and worthless thought. That's retribution, payment. That is not gift and grace. David then says, and now I've not only instructed you, I'm going to exemplify this. I'll model it. He writes checks. He sends money to different elders throughout the land of Judah. He sends money to three Levitical cities that are mentioned in the text and 11 other towns. As David says, not only am I going to give it to you men who fought and you men who guarded the baggage, but I can't wait to distribute God's grace freely all over God's kingdom, God's church. So I've run out of time, but here's some things for you to think about. How devastating is our natural condition? It's bad. You and your household is in real trouble because the evil one is coming against and you can't fix it. Second question, how fantastic is our gracious Messiah? He's better than David. And David did pretty well on this day. Jesus never loses. He wins. Maybe a third question for you to think on. What does a wicked and worthless response look like? When someone imagines they've been holy enough to earn Jesus' health, they've worshiped well enough to earn his wealth, they've been pious enough to earn his prosperity, or heavenly-minded enough to reap a God-honoring household. They think they've been lawful enough to earn the Lord's commendation. They're like those in Deuteronomy 8 who say, Is it not my power and the might of my hand that has gotten me this wealth? Or like Nebuchadnezzar who says, Look at this great city or household that I have built. Perhaps like the Pharisee who says, all these laws I have kept. Or the other Pharisee who said, oh God, I'm thankful that at least I don't sin as badly as those other people do. Wicked and worthless people are impressed by their own contributions, impressed by their performance. They're arrogant because they think we are better and it leads to stinginess. It leads to not sharing grace liberally, the royal grace of God.
So how is the Holy Spirit, question number four, motivating us to practice Christ's likeness? The word humility begins where we realize I'm nothing. I've been given responsibility and I haven't been able to keep it. And my family is paying the, the cost. And even if I were to make efforts to go and reclaim them, I can't get them back. Humility leading to gospel joy. But I have a good Messiah. One who is able to use strong people, weak people, differently gifted people. And now I look back and I see evidence of his grace as he has motivated me to go and to fight and to war and to battle and to work and to perform. And even though I am still impotent, he has done great things through me that I can be used of him to stand against the evil one, to dominate the devil and the, the forces of darkness, to fight for my family, to fight for their purity, to fight for marriages, to fight for my brothers and sisters, elders, to shepherd this flock. God can use us, and we have great joy to realize that. And then how do we respond? Never by taking the credit, ever. But by just realizing grace he has given, and we are conduits of grace, and we just look forward to sharing God's grace that no one deserves, that we didn't deserve. We share the grace of forgiveness, the grace of fellowship, in this church, we share the grace of honor, not thinking that a, that a pastor is any more important than an administrative assistant or that someone who teaches is any more important than someone who pours juice or that someone inv involved in, in a particular ministry has more weight than someone in a different... No, the Lord assigns to His church different gifts and He is the one who gives people the ability to function. So stop the arrogance. And then we also receive material wealth from the Lord. And because we realize we weren't good enough in our business endeavors to earn any of it. We love sharing it like David did, which is why we do offerings every week, giving us an opportunity to just say, Lord, you have graced us, not paid us. You have graced us. And we love to give it away to RUFI, and Horizon Church and other ministries. Until the day that we go to heaven. And there, we'll take our crowns that have been given us. And we will lay them at Jesus' feet. Knowing that he paid it all and deserves it all. It's his crown. Let's be a humble people. Let's be a gracious people. Let's not be wicked and worthless.